I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In a story about a mother's lies and much other more serious crimes, Audrey Marie Hilly would attempt to pull off the ultimate con, but her bold attempt to outsmart everyone would prove to be this Black Widow's ultimate demise. This is episode 22, The Audrey Marie Hilly Story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. How are you? Good. I miss you, but very happy for technology. I know. Me too. We say it every time. I miss you too. All right. So we have some new patrons. All right. Let's hear it. All right. First, I want to give a big thank you to Hannah Shoup from Scottsdale. Thank you, Hannah. And Hannah, I was born in Scottsdale. Oh my gosh. I didn't know you were born in Scottsdale. I'm like an onion, Megan. I know. We're peeling (laughs) away your layers still. I'd also like to say uh, hello and thank you to Jamie Anderson from Utah. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you so much for your support. And Yasmin L. from Manassas. And that's Virginia, right? I believe it is. Yes. Ah, Thank you, Yasmin. All right. We'd also like to say uh, thank you to Erin T. I won't give her last name for now. Erin is the executive director of a nonprofit helping with mental health substance abuse in the Charlottesville area. So if you'd like to check that out, you can see her website on our own org. that's on our own org. I also want to say thank you to Erin for doing such important meaningful work. Absolutely. 
Thanks, Erin. Okay, let's get to Erin's questions. If there was an overhaul in our mental health system, including substance use challenges, and we went from an abstinent-based perspective to a harm reduction model, do you think there would be less women committing crime? She's clearly a mental health professional. Obviously. It's a great question. It's an, it's an absolute 1,000% yes. In yes. our field, uh, we, we argue that we should definitely move to a harm reduction model because it would, it would absolutely reduce crime. It would reduce substance abuse. It would reduce disease. It would have a number of positive effects, and that would certainly be one of them, less women committing crime. Also, as a follow-up to that question, do you believe that substance use challenges are a major contributor to women committing crime or helping their partners commit crime? Yes. That's an also <laughs> yes. overwhelming yes. In fact, Amy, um, what are the numbers for women who have substance abuse problems uh, in prison, incarcerated? I believe the numbers. I've read a few different reports because obviously researchers use different methodologies, but I I would feel comfortable saying 70 to 75 percent. Does that sound right to you? That sounds absolutely right to me. Um, and when I teach women in crime, I cover this topic as well. So, yeah, I think it's about three quarters of women in prison are uh, suffer from substance abuse issues and a history of abuse. I was going to say a lot of times the substance use is self-medicating and trying to deal with these horrible domestic situations that they find themselves in. Absolutely. Okay, so we hope we answered your question, Erin. Um, who else do we have? We have Mariana Campbell from Pennsylvania. Hey, Mariana, thank you so much. Mariana is originally from Brazil, and I know, very exciting. And she also gave us a case suggestion. We love our case suggestions, and I want you all to know whether you're a patron or not, we always keep a list of all your case suggestions. Whether you leave it on a review or email it to us, thank you. We love hearing these suggestions. And we have Madeline. Madeline is graduating with a master's in forensic psychology, Amy. <gasps> That's awesome. Congrats, Madeline. If you need any career advice, hit Ask me Amy. up. Yes, I, right. I too got my master's in forensic psychology. So awesome. And Madeline has a question for us. And her question is this. How do you become successful, stand out, gain respect as a woman in a field mostly dominated by men? Megan, I think your history as a probation officer, I think you're well situated to answer that question. Yeah, I think so as well. It's a great it's a great question. I worked with, I wouldn't say predominantly male, but certainly a more male environment. And I also worked on a special team and where I was the only female. And this was kind of a, it was like, um, I'm trying to think of the way to say this. This was a team that visited with non-compliant offenders and we had to make arrests sometimes or, you know, these were dangerous situations. How do I feel like I stood out? First of all, I definitely worked hard. I mean, there's there's no there's no doubt. You got to start. You feel with like that. you had to work harder. I don't feel like I had to work harder. No, oh. because I was always a hard worker. And to be honest, I differentiated myself because of you know how 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 diligent I was. There's no doubt about that. When I got into the office, I found that it was easy for me to find my own strengths. And I I think that because I didn't try to compete directly with the males in terms of. I didn't need to be the person who was going to use a batting ram to throw a door down. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, that's not my strong suit. But you know what? I found that I was really good at like diffusing situations. I spoke a little bit of Spanish, which no one on my team did. I was a night owl. And it turns out some people were just not great at night shifts and, and they didn't want to take them. I didn't mind getting my hands dirty. And to be honest, because I differentiated myself and because I had my own strengths, I felt that I was very respected by my male colleagues. It's a great answer, Megan. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Madeline, for that question. We also have Elise L. from Portland. 
Have you been to Portland? I love Portland. Portland is one of my favorite cities. My thoughts are with everyone in Portland right now. I know there's a lot of civil unrest, but Portland is an amazing place. Right. Um, lastly, who else do we have today? We have Milani from Los Angeles. Milani might be my favorite name of all our patrons. I, I it's No offense to the other patrons. But. None either, but I was thinking the same thing. So Milani had a really interesting question. Milani asked, why do you think offenders like Centoya Brown and Crystal Kaiser are not seen as victims of human trafficking despite the evidence? I know in both cases there was theft of property and that was used against them in court. Well, I think the simple, unfortunate answer is that sex workers, minority women, um, particularly those who are lower class, they are criminalized. So luckily views are changing and our society does view sex workers as victims, particularly minors, right? When we talked about Centoya Brown, nobody was talking about the fact that Centoya Brown was a sex worker, but she was also a minor. And in court, no one was recognizing the fact that she is a victim. She is a child who was being trafficked by her pimp. So I think it's important that these cases come to light. And I think there's a lot of support for people like Centoya and Crystal. Yeah. Um, in teaching women in crime also, what happened is that we treated victims of trafficking even like prostitutes until very recently, to be honest. And I want to say these views uh, and our treatment of these women only started changing in the last 20 years. So I think historically, we treated women this way. And I think, as Amy said it, uh, well, I think the effect is more pronounced in women who are lower class and or minorities. Yep. And thank you very much for that question. I hope to cover Crystal's case sometime soon. It's great. Thank you to all of our patrons, existing and not. Appreciate it very much. So today we're digging into the Audrey Marie Hilly case. Before there was Stacy Castor, there was Audrey Marie Hilly. Though obviously I've already given away that there are mur- there's a murder and there are other crimes. Have you heard of her? I have not. Okay, well then I think you're going to find this one very interesting. This one I picked, it was an older case that I was interested in. Probably one of the ones after Betty Broderick. And it has so many elements and layers. The twists and turns, there's probably even more after the actual crime of murder is committed. So get ready. Let's do it. So Audrey Marie Hilly, known to most as Marie, was born in June 1933 in North Alabama to parents Lucille and Huey Frazier, who were both local textile workers. This was right after the Great Depression, and Marie's parents, they knew that a single income was not enough, so both of her parents worked. While Marie was primarily raised by her aunts and other relatives, By all accounts, Marie's parents felt badly about this, so they overcompensated by spoiling Marie and by basically allowing her to get her way most of the time. So she was reportedly entitled and used to getting what she wanted from an early age. But the Frasers had really high hopes for their daughter, and so did Marie. She was confident. They moved eventually to Anniston, Alabama, where Marie would attend high school and where she would meet her future husband, Frank Hilly. Keep in mind, Marie was a very attractive young woman who had aspirations. She was very involved academically. She was looking at this time for the secretarial career. Remember, this is also around the 1950s, 1940s. Frank served in the Navy, but returned to Alabama after to take a position in a shipping department, where he eventually moved up the ranks to a very good supervisory position. Frank and Marie married in 1951, and they had their first child, Michael, in 1952. I believe this is while Frank was on leave from the Navy. And then they had their second child eight years later. Her name was Carol, and she was born in 1960. By all outward appearances, the Hillies had it all. They had good jobs. They had the boy and the girl. They had a solid reputation. They had a nice home. 
They had the American dream, but there was trouble brimming under the surface for sure. The first problem was Marie's spending. Marie liked lavish things and she spent way beyond what they could afford. And this became a problem that escalated. So Marie was, this was also at a time, you know, in the 60s and 70s where you could take out credit around town. I don't know if you recall hearing this, but so she was going to all of these different places and getting credit. But then she couldn't keep up with the bills. And so by about 1973, 1974, Frank was, he was finding out about this and he was getting irritated. And she was, at this point, she had collectors coming after her. And she also had secret P.O. boxes all over to hide the bills from him. But he was on to her. And he had been tolerant of Marie's spending for a certain time, but he was getting ready to put his fist down. But even more upsetting were the rumors of Marie's many sexual liaisons outside the marriage, which might have been attributed to just rumor, but for the fact that Frank Hilly came home early one day from work and found his wife, Marie, in bed with her employer in their home. So did Get he- Get a room. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true, right? In your own home, right? So did he leave her? No. Apparently, Frank confided in their son, Michael. At this time, he was studying seminary. So he was, you know, doing Christian studies and he was married at the time. I was going to ask how old he was. He's a little He's older. an adult okay. at the time. He's out of the house and he's a religious man. And Frank confided in him. And I, I don't know what his position was, but what happened was that Frank forgave Marie and he stayed with her, which really would turn out to be a fatal decision for him. In May of 1975, Frank Hilly began seeing his doctor regularly complaining of stomach pain tenderness in the abdomen, nausea, and other symptoms that were seemingly related to a terrible stomach flu. I know where this is going. I'm sure you do. Yes. However, his symptoms worsened, and Frank would be in and out of the hospital several times, suffering from liver failure eventually, disorientation, jaundice. I mean, he was significantly worsening. So he dies. Um, He died in May of 1975. But when he died, the doctor said it was likely due to an infectious hepatitis, which would explain some of the organs, certainly the liver failure, the jaundice. So at the time, it it fit somewhat with his symptoms. Marie collected a life insurance policy on Frank of around $30,000, which went much further in the 1970s, because we know that's not a lot now. But Uh, For Marie, she went on a spending spree. She was buying things for herself, buying cars, buying clothes. She spent the money real quickly. So what happens to Marie and Carol and the family after Frank dies? Marie's mother, Lucille, moved in with them for some time, but she died of cancer while in Marie's care. Also, moving in and out of the home was her son, Michael, Marie and Frank, their son, Michael, and his wife, Terry. And this is where things start to get interesting. They moved in for a short time. Whenever they were going to move out or Marie and Carol were going to move out, their plans would be thwarted by a fire. So there would be a series of fires that would impact their apartment. For example, when Mike and his wife went to move out, there was a fire over at their new apartment building. When Marie was scheduled to move out, there was a fire in her house. It so happens that around Marie, a lot of very questionable fires begin to happen when it's going to be, you know, also if you think about it, inconvenient. Mm -hmm. Um, When when Mike was living with her, then also she was getting help with the bills. And when she was living with him, she didn't have to pay for certain things. So whenever it's a little bit inconvenient for a move, there's a fire. And this would put a serious strain on the family and their living arrangements. But eventually Marie and Carol alone, so Marie and her daughter, 
would move back to Anniston, Alabama, where sickness would curse their family again. Did the grandmother pass away? The grandmother passed away, supposedly, of cancer. She had cancer. That was that was true. So they move back, and this time it's Carol who gets sick. Coincidentally, right after her mother had purchased life insurance on her and her brother, just so you know, and around, I think it was around the same range of thirty dollars to $40,000. So what was wrong with Carol? She was showing symptoms similar to her father. She had nausea, abdominal pain, vomiting, but then she began to experience numbness in her fingers, her hands, and her other limbs. Oh, it must be something genetic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. Carol was admitted more than three times to the hospital, but doctors were absolutely baffled by her condition. At one point, they even had her undergo a psych evaluation because they thought that this was her symptoms were psychosomatic. They, they literally thought that she was imagining this because they couldn't figure out what was going on. These symptoms didn't make sense. But as it turns out, Carol's sickness was very real and there was a very logical explanation for it. While Carol was at the hospital, this was her third or fourth hospital, one of her last trips that she made to the hospital, Marie was arrested for writing bad checks because that's what Marie did. She took out credit. She wrote bad checks. You know, she'd been doing this for years, but it finally caught up with her. But by this time, when she was arrested and when she was in jail for this, the family had grown suspicious of Marie. The reason why, Carol had revealed to Michael and to other relatives that her mother had been giving her vitamin injections, like vitamin shots, to help her with her sickness. But Carol was saying that they never helped. In fact, she always felt sicker afterwards. And the family started to think about this. And so they picked up the phone and they basically, armed with this new information, they contacted her doctors. And Carol's doctors began examining other signs now. They began looking at Carol. And one of the things that they did when they found this information out, they looked at her fingernails and her toenails. The reason why, or what they found, I should say, was these white bands or white striations. Mm -hmm. So this is a symptom of arsenic poisoning. When you have too much arsenic in your system, it deposits in your nails. And so they looked at Carol's fingernails and toenails, and she had these white bands. So what happens then is that they conduct blood work based on that. And the blood work would reveal that Carol had 100 times the normal amount of arsenic in her system. So the doctors were certain that Carol had arsenic poisoning at this point. You know, arsenic is a natural element. You, it's found in soil. It's metal-like, but it's not metal. We ingest it. So they, you know, they, there are times where you will hear normal arsenic amounts because we're ingesting it. If you have rice, if you have peaches, you know, there are certain things. So we're, most people are going to have arsenic in their system. To have 100 times the normal amount was severe. And it sounds like there's no other explanation other than someone poisoning you. Yeah, unless she's ingesting arsenic herself. And I've heard this actually as a defense when arsenic poisoning was involved. I've heard this used. Well, it must have been the person ingesting over arsenic. That's not really a way someone kills themselves. I was going to say it doesn't sound... It doesn't fit with that at all. So what happens now? The police exhume Frank Hilly because he died as well. They also look at Marie's mother. They exhume Lucille. And they found that both of them had excess of the normal amount of arsenic in their systems as well. A search of Marie's home and things also revealed that she possessed arsenic. So she's got it. You know, she's in jail. They've found this. They've exhumed the bodies. Marie was charged with attempted murder on her daughter at first, initially. But the judge set this low bail, less than $15,000. 
So Marie was able to post bail on an attempt to murder. They didn't bring up charges for Frank at this point or Lucille. They indicted her later. So they were doing all this, what they knew in in the immediate. And Mm -hmm. what happens in law enforcement is that they had the information. They had the proof for Carol. So they, you know, right away they're, they're setting those charges, but they had to collect more of the evidence and they were, they would later indict her for sure on the murder of her husband. She wasn't indicted on the murder of her mother because also her mother had arsenic. I don't know how much it was, uh, but her mother did have cancer. So it was really hard to parse that out. So Mm -hmm. they focused on the two healthy Mm -hmm. people. So why do you think Marie got such low bail, Amy? She wasn't a flight risk. She didn't have any priors. Yeah. I mean, those are the typical explanations. But since we look at women in crime through the gender lens, I'm going to go ahead and say it's because she's also an attractive female. Yep. Not, you know, she's Mm -hmm. not, uh, she doesn't present the threat that we might think Mm -hmm. of. And Marie had a way with people. She had a way with men. Uh, She had a way with people. She could make herself more, you know, desirable. And I don't mean that in Mm -hmm. in the sexual way. But so she got this low bail, and I think it really had to do with um, her gender. So what does Marie do when she gets bail? Does she go home and find a lawyer and start prepping for her trial? Nope. Marie fled. She literally left. And in her absentia, she was charged with the murder of her husband. But also while she was gone, his mother, Carrie Hilly, died. And Marie had also been her caretaker for quite some time. So they tested Frank's mother as well. They tested her and they found elevated arsenic levels in her system as well. Wow. So we are talking about a woman who has on the record pretty much poisoned arsenic, killed one, maybe two people, but attempted four murders. Wow. Yeah. So she's officially, and we'll talk about this later, but she's an attempted serial killer. And if it had worked, she, she may be a serial killer, in fact. So many people thought that you know, she fled and this is the murder and this is the interesting part. But I think that the story gets a lot more interesting after she flees. Marie is on the run. She leaves Alabama and she heads for Florida, where she meets a man named John Homan. He's a local boat builder, and I believe he was also a local bodybuilder at some point. Remember, Marie had a knack for meeting and attracting men, so this was not a surprise. This happened very quickly. Marie was going under the alias at this time of Robbie, and she and John moved in together real quickly. She took a job at at some type of administrative position. I believe it was another secretarial position, which she had been doing for life. And she claimed that she had this very sad past. She had lost her children at a tragedy, and that was it. She didn't want to talk about it. She was moving on with her life. And people, obviously, John and others, respected that. She and John married in 1981 and moved to New Hampshire. So this is she's been gone for about a year at this point. Her next move, though, is so curious. It's a very curious move because things were going seemingly well. She and John got along well. They both had good careers. She was, you know, not under detection in any way. But they were, she was still on the man. They were looking for her. They were looking for her. So you never know if that had something to do with this in which way. But still, she claimed to her husband that she had been suffering from some type of rare blood illness for which there was really no cure and for which she had to seek out special treatments, kind of setting the stage that she could get very sick. She also began to tell John and her co-workers about her twin sister named Terry, who lived in Texas and who Robbie would 
have to visit to receive those special medical treatments for her rare blood disorder. John was sort of like, I want I'll take you. I'll yeah. go with you. And she was like, no, I'm visiting my sister. She's got this. And, you know, she had already, again, laid the foundation that she had a twin sister who was helping her with finding like prime medical treatments. Robbie leaves for her sister's house one day in Texas, but she never comes back. Instead, John gets a phone call from Terry, who says that Robbie died while in Texas seeking treatment, but Terry would really like to come visit uh, John and get to, get to know who his sister had married. She said, look, we maybe can con- console each other through this tragedy. This, was, this is a horrible tragedy. I never met you. My sister loved you. And so I'd like to come meet you. This is crazy. <laughs> this, no, this is absurd, okay? So Terry comes. She's But Terry's hit. really Murray. Who's Terry is really Robbie, who's really Marie. Gotcha, okay. <laughs> Terry, who is thinner than Robbie and who has blonde hair now, arrives. And John is fooled. She manages to fool him. He said, of course, she looked just like her, but she's thinner. She's lost about 20 pounds and she has a different hair color. But she manages to fool others around town as well for quite some time. And she gets a job there. Another she, type of secretarial position. Was she romantically involved with John? So it seems that they became romantically involved in some point, but not married again. I know this is, I mean, this woman was quite the con artist, okay? So she did manage to fool people, but then there were others who were just skeptical. There were people around who were like, this woman is clearly playing John. We don't know why. But so really it was like the friends and like amateur sleuthing that led to some of the locals looking into Robbie's death. So because Terry had said, you know, Robbie died. And so they looked into Robbie had an obituary and it said where she was treated and where she was buried. And so the people who knew John and locals looked into this and they found that it was like a false hospital. The hospital didn't exist. And neither did, I think, the cemetery. So, she wasn't smart enough to at least use a real cemetery or real hospital. Yeah, that's that part surprised me too. I'm not positive actually about the cemetery, but I know mm-hmm. it was a fake hospital. So they were they they contacted the authorities and they're they actually thought she was a different fugitive at first. There was a fugitive with a I don't remember the last name, but there was a Terry something, and they thought it was her. And authorities they they basically apprehended her and asked who she was, and she admitted right away to being Audrey Marie Hilly. Really? And she was sent back to Alabama to face the wrath that had awaited her. She had been gone for three years. She initially told them, however, I'm Audrey Marie Hilly, and I'm wanted in Alabama for forgery and che- bad checks. And so when they ran it, they were like, this woman is wanted for attempted murder. And- I wonder why she didn't try to get away with I guess she knew they were going to get onto her eventually. Yeah, I wonder that too. I also wonder what this mysterious upping and leaving. She think, clearly has some sort of mental illness. Well, we can, I mean, we'll definitely get okay. to that in personality disorders and whatnot. I actually think it might be so that she married John and there was official, there was, a, you know, official documents. And I think for one of the jobs, she may have even needed a social security number and she was having trouble with some of these issues. So I think maybe she thought like life with John was good. She liked life with John, I think. I think maybe she thought if she could not be married to him anymore, so she creates a new person because they they will never get married. She'll never have to worry about submitting sort of some of these official documents. I'm not really sure, but it's a very bizarre twist. And he believed her. Marie is transferred back to Alabama 
and she faced trial in 1983. It did not take the jury long at all. And this was for the attempted murder of her daughter. Attempted murder of her daughter and for the murder of Frank Hilly. Oh. For her husband. So So she was indicted on that at this point. She was indicted, if you remember before I said in absentia. So she was gone and they indicted her. Yes, yes. So they tried her and they came back rather quickly with a guilty verdict for the murder of her husband and for the attempted murder of her daughter. Her daughter actually had to testify in court. And I read in some documents that her daughter was really conflicted because Marie said, I, I, I didn't do this to you. I love you. You were my whole world. Of course, I had to leave. And of course, her daughter, she wants to believe that. You know, I heard actually Stacy Castor's daughter talk about this as well. You know, she wanted to believe her mother loved her. But in the end, she she did come to understand that her mother poisoned her. And the prosecution was worried about what kind of witness Carol would make, but they said that she did quite well and she was able to explain very factually. You know, I got injected at this point. I was sick at this point. And so she was able to show the jury. Marie got life for the murder of Frank and 20 years for the attempted murder of Carol. She was sent to a women's prison in Alabama where she was designated a minimum security level offender. And you know what this meant at the time? That she was able to go on work release? Very close, yes. And so it met, met, it made her eligible for temporary leave from prison, otherwise known as a furlough. Mm-hmm. At the time, that was a practice. Being designated as a low-level offender means she got weekend passes out. I think you're going to find the next part a little shocking as well. Amazingly, her husband, John, stood by her, even knowing that she had lied about becoming Terry, uh, lied about being Robbie, he stood by her and he even relocated to Anniston, Alabama to be near his wife. What? This woman has a spell. Wow. But John's t- devotion to Marie was clearly unreciprocated, Amy, because... Oh, that's sad. I know. And you're going to see this. She took the opportunity on one of her weekends away from the prison to... And with John, she was with him. And I think they were at a hotel at this point. But she fled from the authorities and from her husband again. Oh, think he was out getting them food or running an errand. This time, however, would mark a much shorter time on the run for Marie. It was cold. And Marie, this wasn't a well-planned escape. She didn't have any means. She didn't have any money. She fled a hotel room with, you know, what was on her. And apparently she had been outside and roaming and in the woods and exposed to the cold for too long. What happened was she was found on this local woman's porch and having found a totally incoherent and clearly hypothermic Marie. So she calls the authorities. Marie was brought to the hospital and treated for severe hypothermia, but her heart stopped and she died. I was not expecting that. And so marked the final escape by the great con artist Audrey Marie Hilly at it, age 54. Is this a movie? Yes, it is. I was going to say, how could this not be? It was a Lifetime movie for a long... How is this not a Hollywood movie? I don't know. What a story. You can't make that up. You can't can't make this up. I saw this as... So I saw this as a Lifetime movie years ago. It was called like Wife, Mother, Murderer. Of course it was. (laughs) Of course, something like that. But it starred Judith Light. Do you know her? Yes, she was in... um, What's that called? Family Ties. No, no. Who's the boss? Who's the boss? Yes. Okay, so she became a lifetime actress yeah. years later. By the way, I love her. I and think she's great. She was so good in this role. The movie Who, was she, so good. She played Marie? She played Marie. Cool. It was, really, it was really a good movie, I have to say. It was a really good depiction of her. And I remember being shocked by this. But since such time, there was a book 
And there have been some articles, but this is not a case that is, you know, like Stacey Castro level. And maybe it's because it was so far back in the day. I was going to say it was so long ago. If it was modern day, it would be. Yeah, if it was modern day, it certainly would be. So at 54, it was interesting because the woman who found her also described, you know, this. she knew who Audrey Murray Hilly was, I guess, and Mm -hmm. said that this woman, it was so sad. She was, you know, cold. She was dirty. Mm -hmm. She was everything that Murray Hilly in life, you know, didn't want to be. I feel bad for John. My God, I feel terrible for John. I mean, I feel worse for the victims, obviously, Frank and possibly Lucille, but... Poor John. I know. That was a sad ending. He Mm -hmm. was such a good guy. Yeah. So, okay. uh, Our opinion here at the end, I mean, this is not so controversial, but Mm -hmm. let me just say a couple things. First of all, Marie Hilly is definitely a serial killer. So I would use, or an attempted serial killer. I would use her case in Women in Crime and in my serial killer class. And when I classify serial killers, I usually talk about the type. So Marie was what I would consider a classic prophet serial killer. She really didn't enjoy the act, but saw it like as a utility. I think Marie was psychopathic. I think she had all the traits of psychopathy. But when we look at the difference between males and females, male serial killers tend to perform the act for um, hedonistic purposes. Either there's a sexual pleasure or there's a power control domination. Sometimes they're mission oriented. They're trying to get rid the world of certain classes of people. But very infrequently are male prophet serial killers, unless you're talking about like the Iceman. So Marie is a classic in that way that she's a prophet serial killer. Also, what we know about women is that they poison. Historically, women poisoned because of their roles in the home. And when they went out in the workplace, they were often healthcare workers or nurses. So they had access to poison. So this also makes her pretty typical. It doesn't happen as much anymore uh, with arsenic. It still does. But um, this is a way that women poison so that they don't also have to manage the physical aspect of murder. It's, you know, much harder for a woman, usually physically, to dominate a male. So Marie's a serial killer. I think that her, the what I did have opinion on was the low bail was set for her. And I think that was clearly a mistake. And the designation as a low-risk offender and an allowance of a furlough for a convicted murderer. And someone who jumped bail. And that was the so second So if you point. have any sort of escape history, you you don't get, well, nowadays, they, they would never grant you bail again or a work release or any type of furlough. No, no absolutely not. Her clear history, she was the most serious offender, designated the least serious, and someone who had, like you said, escaped. So I think the big miss here was obviously the system mm-hmm. underestimated Marie. Mm-hmm. And I really think it was Marie's attractive demeanor and her station as a middle class to upper class woman. That is the reason she received these beneficial decisions. Mm-hmm. Amy, do people still get, speaking of furloughs, do people still get furloughs now at all? No. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, people in Jersey go to halfway, you know, when they're getting close to release. So that's the closest thing we have to furlough. But that's not, I wouldn't consider that a furlough, but it's a stepping stone before you're on your own. Right. There were like one or two controversial cases that really ruined oh, furloughs. Horton. Do you remember? Yes. I was going to say Willie Horton. Ugh. So and, and, you know, Willie Horton went on a crime spree mm-hmm. spree after he was granted furloughs. And so they mm-hmm. were pretty much halted in the country. And I think that was what in the, the 80s? It was it was around the same time as the war on drugs. Right. right. All of that kind of the perfect storm. 
Anyway, um, so on that note, uh, Marie Hilly was what I found to be, uh, she's a serial killer. She was almost a master a con serial? artist. She wasn't a serial killer, right? She, she's an attempted serial, serial killer. killers, three or more. But we don't know that there weren't three. Carol survived, but the other three victims had elevated levels of arsenic. Gotcha. So, so it is possible yeah. that she's a serial killer and at the very le- least, least attempted, an attempted for sure. serial killer. Yep. And a master con artist, I might add. Absolutely. So, that was a really interesting case, Megan. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. And, and thank, thank you guys for listening. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode came from the LA Times, CrimeLibrary.com, and the Orlando Sentinel. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.